So I want you all to know a really fun fact about me. Tonight is the first Sunday chapel of the new year. Thank you all for being here. Can we give it up again for the band, though, as well? Yeah. They just got back from being gone all weekend with middle schoolers and high schoolers leading them in worship, so I appreciate them very deeply. But the fun fact about me that you need to know actually does pertain to a Sunday night chapel. My wife, Ashley, and I, we actually met for the very first time after a Sunday night chapel here at Sterling College. Everybody goes, aww. Okay? Now, it actually gets better than that. The story on the surface of it is actually a little bit scandalous because you see, yep, let me finish. All right, okay. Okay, it's a bit scandalous on the surface because Ashley's best friend, Melissa, introduced us because you see, Melissa had a crush on me. I know. And wanted to get her best friend's opinion of this new guy. Well, Ashley and I have been married for 10 years, so I think the opinion of me was all right. <laughs> all right, it did end up working out. Melissa married an awesome guy named Josh, and the four of us are still really close friends. In fact, I'm really hoping, I texted Melissa, I said, I want to bring you out here. She's an alumni. She would be an amazing speaker, so I'm hoping to bring her out for the spring semester. So you might actually get a chance to meet Melissa, and maybe I'll, I'll tell the story more uh, in detail when she comes. But I actually went, I'm, I'm big, I guess I'm big about showing you guys old pictures of me. I went and found a picture of Ashley and I from my freshman year. Yeah. There it is. That was... Uh, that was my freshman year, spring, spring of my freshman year, that was 2008, that was many moons and many pounds ago, right? I have, I've gained a lot of weight since then. So actually in this picture, uh, Ashley and I had not started dating yet, quite at this point, we were still just friends, but about a month after this picture, we were going to begin dating and eventually we got engaged and then what happens after an engagement? You get married. Okay, so that is compressing our story a little bit, right? Friends to dating to engaged and at some point, I'll have to tell you the whole story of Ashley and I's relationship, but tonight I want to focus in on one particular moment in our relationship. Our wedding vows. Our wedding vows. Here's a picture of us from our wedding. Aww. Okay. So Sunday Night Chapel, fun fact, Sunday Night Chapel used to be off campus. It used to be down at the Presbyterian Church. So when I was a student, that's where it was. So Ashley and I met at the Presbyterian Church uptown. Guess which church here in town Ashley and I got married in? Oh, come on. That's right. All right. So this picture was taken in the Presbyterian Church downtown on the day of our wedding. And I want you to think about Ashley and I's wedding vows for a moment. Now, vows are the most important part of a wedding ceremony. They're more important than the sermon from the pastor. They're more important than the rings, and they're even more important than the first kiss. You see, vows are a solemn promise of future love that is unconditional to the core. It is incredibly easy to say, I love you to your spouse on your wedding day. It's really, really easy to do that. Vows are not about love that's easy to feel today. No, vows are a commitment to continue saying I love you every single day into the future, no matter what happens. Now, vows are also the moment where you promise yourself fully to your spouse. In your vow, you are supposed to be saying to them, I belong fully to you. No other human matters as much as you do. I am yours and yours alone. That's what vows are. 
Now, given all of that context, I want you to imagine what would have happened if I had stood up to Ashley on our wedding day, right? And if I had begun to say my portion of the vows, and instead of the traditional vows, which I'm guessing we all know, what if I did this instead? I, Paul, might take you, Ashley, to be my wedded wife if you don't screw up too much. Ooh. Wait, I got more. I got more. (laughs) To have and to hold, if it's easy, for better only, not for worse, for richer only, certainly not for poorer, and only if you stay healthy, so don't think about getting sick, to love you when I feel like it, and to be served by you as long as we both shall live or until I find somebody that I like more. (laughs) Okay? Now, praise Jesus, I didn't say that, but what if I had? That's right, I'd be single. Trinity nailed it. I would be single. She would have walked off the platform and she would have had every right to do so. It would have been a brilliant decision on her half if I had done that in the vows. And here's why we know that that's true. Here's why we know that that those vows would be ridiculous. We know that spouses are supposed to get everything from the other person. You can't give half vows. Marriage works best when the other person gets it all. My marriage to Ashley works best when I don't hold anything back. And here's the kicker. In the new life with Jesus, it works the exact same way. In the new life with Jesus, it works the exact same way. So this past Wednesday, our first chapel of the year, we started a seven-message teaching series. So these are going to be the first seven messages that I preach So I'm not going to be preaching the first seven in a row, but every time I preach, we're going to be unpacking this idea, the new life. And on Wednesday, we discovered that new life, which I'm convinced is what we are all looking for, we discovered that new life, at least this is what I submitted to you, you may not have believed me, but we submitted to you, or I submitted to you, that new life only comes through Jesus. I said on Wednesday that Jesus' kingdom is upside down, but it is the only one that is built to last. And it is the only place that we can find the new life that we all desperately need. Now tonight, regarding the new life, we're going to discover this. In the new life, Jesus gets it all. In the new life, Jesus gets it all. Now you might hear that from me, you might read that on the screen, and you might be tempted to tune out. You might be tempted to take out your phone or just keep it out if you already have it already, but I would encourage you not to do that. Stick with me, because I think by the end of this evening, we are going to see what good news this is. And to help us get there, as we unravel this statement, we're going to lean on a couple of different passages of Scripture, and the first one is from the book of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. It is a gospel, it's sort of a biography of Jesus' life, and 22 chapters is a while into it. And I'm going to read the passage for us, we're going to start in verse 34, I'll have it on the screen behind me. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question, Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. 
A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Now, this is an incredibly significant moment in the life and teaching of Jesus. You see, by this point in his ministry, he had established himself as a person of brilliance, one who understood God's word and who taught on it and taught from it with unique authority. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day, in this passage, Jesus is dealing with two different groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. These leaders, they were threatened by Jesus' growing star. They were frightened by him. And so they often, you'll read about this in the pages of the New Testament, in the pages of the Gospel, they often tried to trip him up with clever and difficult questions. And the question that we find on the lips of the teacher of the law, the expert in the law, in verse 36, is actually a difficult question. He asks Jesus, which command is most important? That might not seem very difficult, particularly if we only sort of first think about the Ten Commandments. Those are the most famous commandments, and we might think, well, that's not so hard. This guy is just asking Jesus to choose one of ten. He should be able to do that pretty easily. But he's not asking Jesus to just pick one of ten. No, this guy is asking Jesus to pick from one of over 610 commandments that we find in the Old Testament portion of our Bible. Now, this was a popular debate in Jesus' day. People would, you know, develop opinions and they would come to one another and argue about this very question. There's different opinions of the day, and this religious leader, this expert in the law, he is hoping to trip Jesus up with an answer that is unpopular. And I don't know this for sure, but I like to think that Jesus didn't hesitate at all. I like to think that he got asked this incredibly difficult and hard question and that he didn't even miss a beat. Instead, I imagine that he moved immediately to quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he moved immediately to quoting from Leviticus 19. He pulled, he knew, Jesus knew his Bible well. And he gets asked this incredibly difficult question. And he doesn't hesitate for one moment, but he lays down the answer in front of them. Simply put, love God and love people. Love God and love people. Strip everything else away, Jesus says, and this is what life boils down to. Love God and love people. Now both of those, love God and love people, both of those deserve reflection, but tonight we're going to focus on that first one, love God. Look back with me again at verse 37. I'm going to throw that verse, just that verse up on the screen, and I'm going to highlight what I do not want you to miss in this verse. Jesus replied to the question about which commandment was most important. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. All, all, all. This is not hard. Let's follow Jesus' logic down the trail for a moment. If we are commanded to love God with all that we have, then how much are we supposed to hold back? Let's ask it as a percentage. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, Jesus demands 100% of you. 
If you reply with a yes, if you give him 100%, then how much do you have left for yourself? 10%? 5%? 1%? No. Zero. Matthew 22:37 is an excellent place to see that Scripture does bring us to our big idea for this evening. In the new life, Jesus gets it all. In the new life, Jesus gets it all. Let's keep pressing. Because if this is true, and again, you might not think it is, but if this is true, this is a big idea. This is a big idea, and big ideas have what? They have implications. They have ripple effects. If you drop a massive boulder into the middle of your bathtub, guess what happens? Water splashes out. Stuff changes. This idea that in the new life, Jesus gets it all, is a massive boulder, and I'm dropping it into the middle of your life. You may not agree with it. You may disagree. You may push this away, but I'm dropping this into the middle of your life for at least the next few minutes. So let's look at one of the implications of this. In the new life, Jesus gets it all, which means how you live matters. In the new life, Jesus gets it all, which means how you live matters. We find this idea in another book of our Bibles, and we're going to move there, because I think this helps us. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Corinth. And in chapter 6 of this letter, verses 19 and 20, Paul speaks this significant and beautiful truth over the Christians that were receiving the letter. And by extension, Paul and the Holy Spirit, which inspired him to write these words, he speaks this truth over those of us who are in Christ, over those of us who are followers of Jesus. It's one of the best verses in the entire Bible. It's a beautiful truth that I want to speak over your life. Here it is. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Another way of saying this might be this. Jesus purchased you, which means that you don't belong to you. You might think you are your own owner, but you're wrong. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you belong to him. He gets it all, 100%, nothing left over. Sounds a lot like Matthew 22, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Now, Paul continues. He continues. I left off the end of the verse. Here it is. Here's the full thought from Paul. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, it's easy to overlook words like therefore. They don't seem all that important. But there are incredibly important words. Another way of phrasing this might be this. Because the last thing is true, this next thing is also true. So because it is true that you are not your own, it is also true that you must honor God with your bodies. And I cannot even begin to tell you how much the church in Corinth, Corinth was missing this message. This church that Paul was writing this letter to, they were a beautiful mess. A beautiful mess. God was working in their midst, but they had tons of problems. Tons of problems. And one of their central problems is something that I see us struggling with still today in a massive way. A couple thousand years later, a few thousand miles away. 
same exact problem. You see, the Corinthian Christians, they understood that fundamentally the message of Jesus is one of grace and forgiveness that sets you free. If anybody ever tries to tell you that the way of Jesus is not one of grace and forgiveness that sets you free, don't listen to them. Now, the Corinthian Christians, they had gotten that much. They knew that much to be true. They knew that they had been slaves to their sin and that by trusting in Jesus, he had saved them from that sin and they were now free. And they also knew that God's grace, God's good gift to them, even when they didn't deserve it, was unlimited. God's grace will never run out. So they put these two ideas together. Freedom from their sin over here and grace and forgiveness over here and then they began they punched that into the equation and out the other end came this idea they thought that how they lived didn't matter and you can see how they got there they thought if we're free in Christ and God will always forgive me because of his grace why does it matter how I live what does it matter what choices I make I can live freely however I please and if I screw up, well, then God will just forgive me. So this teaching began to invade the church. This teaching took the church over. Just read the book of 1 Corinthians sometime. You will not be bored. I promise you. Get real weirded out in chapter 5. And if you zoom out in chapter 6, one of the things that Paul is talking about with this verse that we just looked at is the fact that some folks in the church had started to sleep with prostitutes and brag about it. Didn't think it was a big deal at all. And so Paul shows up in this letter and he's like, whoa, 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 hold on, this is crazy. Yes, you are free in Christ, but you've got the wrong idea about what freedom means. In fact, you think you belong to yourself and can do what you want, but you don't. Jesus bought you for a price and you are not your own. How you live matters. In the new life, Jesus gets it all. So how you live matters. What Paul communicates so clearly in 1 Corinthians 6 is that our bodies matter to God. Our choices matter to God. Our decisions matter to God. How we live matters to God. And I believe that followers of Jesus need this reminder of all ages. Followers of Jesus of all ages need this reminder, but I don't wonder if you all, college students, especially need this message. I remember college. It wasn't that long ago. And I remember in college undervaluing the impact that my choices had. Now, I, I, I'm not, I remember I, I, of course, and I believe the same for you, I knew that my choices had impact upon me and upon others, but upon reflection, I was way undervaluing in college the impact of my daily choices upon myself and my life and upon the lives of those around me, way undervaluing it. And I don't know all of you yet, you might not be the same way, but if you're anything like I was in college, I needed this message. Because the truth is that your daily choices, the stuff that does not feel like a big deal, is a big deal. The stuff that feels like it can just fade away, that it's not going to have an impact, that it's not forming you, that it's not shaping you, that it's not changing the type of person that you are, 
It is a big deal. It is. And it's also true that Jesus cares deeply about every single one of those choices. And not in a, I'm going to get you if you break one of my rules kind of way. The quicker that you stop thinking about Jesus in that type of way, the better. Because that's not what it's about. The worst thing that could happen for you tonight is for you to hear me say that Jesus cares about your choices. And for you to walk out and think that means that Jesus is up there just sort of keeping score. And that he gets really mad when you blow it. And that he loves you less when you blow it. That's the worst thing that could happen. But on the other end of that, the second worst thing that could happen is if you never understand that your choices, no matter how small they do seem, are deeply significant. And Jesus, in his way, offers wisdom for the moment. Jesus' way of life isn't just right, it's better. Jesus' way of life is not just right, it's actually better. You might not believe that. Maybe you've tried Jesus' way of life and it seems boring. Or maybe you've tried Jesus' way of life and it let you down, or it was too hard. Or maybe you haven't because it seems really boring. Or maybe you've misunderstood what Jesus' way of life is. Or maybe somebody that said they were following Jesus treated you like crap. Or maybe you grew up in a church with a bunch of people that said they were following Jesus, but they treated you like crap. Or maybe, I don't know. There are any number of reasons why you might hear that phrase, Jesus' way of life is not just right, it's better, and disagree with me. And I don't know your stories yet. But that is the most fundamental truth that I hold core inside of myself. It is. I believe that more strongly than I believe anything else in the world. That's why I took this job. Because I desperately want to have a conversation with you about that. Now, Christians that forget that Jesus' way of life is not just right, it's better, they suffer from something that pastor and author Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Cheap grace. Here's what cheap grace is according to Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace is forgiveness without requiring any life change. Cheap grace is forgiving, is baptizing people without challenging them to live like Jesus did. Cheap grace is giving them communion without requiring the confession of their sins. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Once you know what cheap grace is and you look around, it is shocking how many Christians suffer from it. And that ought to be terrifying to us because, like Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is grace without Jesus, which is not grace at all. Cheap grace is like those really terrible knockoff iPhone chargers, you know, the ones, right? You plug it in and it like just starts like attacking your hand because it's like buzzing on, buzzing off, buzzing on, buzzing off, right? They don't work and you throw it in the trash two seconds after you bought it. Cheap grace is nothing, there is no point to cheap grace. But true grace, 
real grace, Jesus grace, that stuff is the best drug in the entire world. Once you experience Jesus-centered grace, you can't get anything else. Your life is transformed forever. Bonhoeffer calls that costly grace. Cheap grace, costly grace. Cheap grace, costly grace. Here's what he says about costly grace. Costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow. We talked about that on Wednesday, didn't we? Follow Jesus wherever he goes. But it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. Right? It would not be grace if I stood up here and said, you have to follow me, Paul Brandis. But it's grace because you get to follow Jesus. And his way is better. Grace, true grace, is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it saves the sinner. And above all, It is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not consider his son too high a price to pay for our life, but instead gave him up for us. Did you catch the reference to 1 Corinthians 6, our passage for tonight, one of our passages for tonight. You were bought at a price. And what price was that? What price did God pay to save us, to purchase us? We talked about it on Wednesday. Jesus bids us come and die like he did. Though he did not deserve it, he walked the way of death that was meant for you, meant for me. Ultimately, Jesus paid for us, purchased us with his life. How incredible is that? And it leads us to our second point for this evening. Because yes, it is true that in the new life, Jesus gets it all. But it is also equally true, equally important, that no matter how you've lived your old life, Jesus wants it all. No matter how you've lived your old life, Jesus wants it all. Are you tracking with me on this? We all need to hear this. Yes, Jesus gets it all. That's not a negotiation. You don't get to come to Jesus and offer 75%, offer 90%, offer 99%. He says, surrender it all to me, all or nothing. There's no negotiation on Jesus getting it all, but is it not amazing that he wants it all? Despite whatever you've done. No matter how you've lived in your old life, Jesus wants it all. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, pounds this truth home, right? You were bought with a price. If you buy something, it has value. By definition, if you buy something, it has value. And I believe there are a number of us here tonight who need that. Jesus purchased you, which means you have value. Incredible immense, immeasurable, unbelievable value to the creator of the universe. What's more, Jesus purchased you at your worst. 
Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about how Jesus purchased you when you were at your worst? Romans 5 says that while we were still sinners, God sent Jesus to die for us. While you, he didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He didn't wait for you to make yourself look good. At your worst, Jesus purchased you. At your worst, Jesus valued you at that level. I need that. Do you? When I forget that, it becomes all too easy for me to get lost, to forget that despite my regrets, Jesus wants me. Despite my mistakes, Jesus wants me. Despite my shame, Jesus wants me. Despite my rejection of him, Jesus wants me. Despite all of the ways I have screwed up in my old life, Jesus still wants it all. And the same is true for you too. No matter how you've lived your old life, Jesus wants it all. And to get it, to get it, to get your life, to bring you back to himself... He purchased you with his one and only son, his beloved son, Jesus. That's something that I've heard about my entire life, that God purchased my life with Jesus's. But it took on unique meaning for me when I had my sons, Bevan and Owen. Because I love y'all, but I am not giving up Bevan or Owen for any of you. I'm just not. But God did. That's the price he paid. He purchased your life with the life of his son. And we need to stop just for a moment near the end here, right? Because it's very easy to think about the way that we purchase things and to get confused. Because we buy things, we purchase things, right? Just a few weeks ago, I had a list of house projects and I went to Home Depot. I walked in, I, I got a cart. I got lost about seven different times because I don't know what I'm doing. I asked for help, I had my list, I had people tell me where to go, and I put a bunch of stuff into my cart, I walked up to the self-checkout because, you know, who wants to talk to people when you don't have to, right? And I scanned in, I, I scanned it all right, I put my card in the machine, I punched in my PIN code, it didn't get rejected, praise Jesus, okay? And I purchased those items, and I packed them up and I left. I purchased them, didn't I? That's not what Jesus did for you, is it? That's not how Jesus purchased you, is it? No, Jesus purchased you by giving up heaven to humble himself and come to earth. Jesus purchased you by living a perfect life, by resisting the temptation to sin every single time. He purchased you by being betrayed by his closest friends, handed over to captors that hated him with a vengeance. Jesus purchased you by standing trial for crimes that he did not commit, by being spit on, mocked, kicked, beaten, and bruised. Jesus purchased your life by having a crown of thorns shoved upon his head in mockery of him as a king. Jesus purchased you by receiving 40 lashes minus one, only so that they wouldn't kill him before the cross. Do you know that? They had done the science of how many lashes kill a person, and then they just subtracted one. That's how Jesus purchased your life. Jesus purchased your life by bearing the cross until he could no more, until his body collapsed under its weight. And they had to tap in Joseph 
to carry the cross the rest of the way. Jesus purchased you by stretching out both hands, the hands that created and sculpted the world to receive the nails that would pin him to that cross. That's how Jesus purchased you. He purchased you by staying on that cross, by bearing the sin of the world, the weight of your sin, the weight of my sin, and ultimately Jesus purchased you by dying the death that we deserved. I walked into Home Depot with my cart. I purchased some stuff. But that's not what Jesus did to purchase you. No, he did all that. So you go ahead and tell me that you don't have value. You do. You do. No matter how you've lived your old life, Jesus wants it all. And he proved it with the purchase of your life. I know that it seems hard that Jesus gets it all. I know you don't want to surrender it. I don't want to surrender it. I know that that seems restrictive, difficult. It seems demanding. It might even seem unappealing to you. You might be completely turned off by the fact that in the new life, Jesus gets it all. But I don't know. I guess I'm just older. I guess I've just lived enough life. I guess I've just made enough mistakes. I have enough shame. I have enough regret. I don't care that Jesus gets it all because I'm still blown away by the fact that he wants it all. When I look at my life, it blows me away that Jesus still wants me. And so I'll happily go to him and say, sure, you can have it. What about you? Jesus wants it all. Are you going to give it to him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for purchasing us by sending your son Jesus to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve. And thank you, Father, that that death had no hold on him, that three days later he rose again from the grave, providing a pathway into this new life. That's what we're talking about here at Sterling College, Lord. We're talking about the possibility, the beauty, the brilliance of new life in Jesus. And I pray, Father, that each and every single one of us, by the power of the Spirit, would have the ability to give it all up to you. Thank you for wanting it all, no matter what is there. And help us, Father, on a daily basis to give it all up to you and live in accordance with with the way of your son, Jesus. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Will you stand up and join us for worship for a closing song? Mm -hmm.